Welcome to Straight Talk Live. We are live with Straight Talk Live. Welcome back, everyone. Excited to have you with us today. My name is Rick Snyder, one of your co-hosts for this non-for-profit show dedicated to having the most impactful conversations that we need to be having right now on the planet. And so you're a big part of that. We're going to even ask you right now, please send in your questions. We want your engagement. Even if you're seeing this replay later, feel free to add your comments in the section below. Uh, we want to answer your questions and really build community and inspire the deeper conversations we need to be having in so many corners of the planet right now. So with that, um, I am the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and the head of culture for Refound. And I'm also joined by our fellow amazing co-host, Af Malhotra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Good afternoon, good morning, maybe good evening for, for our audiences that have you know joined in from other parts of the world. Very excited once again to be on this fantastic show. I'm Af Malhotra, of course, the co-founder of Growth Enabler and the co-creator of uh, Straight Talk Live. Today's show is especially relevant to all of us, and uh, I think will be quite inspiring uh, for a lot of reasons, because we have David Germain on the show, who um, is a is a great guy. Uh, he's a he's a great guy. He's a fantastic leader, and I got connected with him recently, and I spent about forty five minutes talking to him. And I have to say, I came off that conversation not just feeling um, thankful and grateful for having met him, but also I had a, a sort of renewed sense of energy and a feeling of um, almost contentment around the fact that we've done straight talk live. We've set up this this not for profit, and one of the things that both Rick and I have talked about is every time we do one of these shows for for all of you listening, it's very important that we have a practical or a pragmatic takeaway uh, because we we have these phenomenal speakers and, and brilliant minds from around the world who are sharing wisdom and their personal stories and it's it's only justified and the right thing for us to do here which is to really spend a little bit of time at the end of the show to summarize either with the guest in this case david to tell us what we should do differently or do more of or do less of perhaps on the back of the 60 minute conversation we're going to have. So without further ado, it's uh, an incredible honor to have David on the show. So Rick, I'll let you do the honors and in traditional fashion, uh, let's crack on. Excellent. So I'm very excited about this topic. I know so many people are looking at, we need new leadership models. The old ones are broken. How do we need to reassess and pivot in, in this day, especially with the pandemic, with uh, social unrest, with so many deep topics that we're having to confront and question about ourselves, about our identity, about our sense of belonging, um, you know, my tribe, my country, my, my nation, my, my planet. Um, it's really, we're really having to really be confronted in these critical ways to look at how do we redefine our relationships, especially from one of extraction to one of generativity. How do we move from profit only to real prosperity? What does that really mean? That's what we're going to be digging in deeply today. So without further ado, I want to introduce our special guest, David Germain. David, welcome to the show. Uh, Rick, Kath, thank you for, for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to your audience. Um, I think I've started off, please. Yeah, could you just share with our audience just a brief bio about you, where you come from, your background? Uh, for those who might not know who you are at this point. 
Yeah, I'm sure no one knows who I am saying so. That's probably a, that's a good starting point. No, that's not true, hand. David. <laughs> We've got fans. We've got fans here. You've got fans, David. <laughs> I, no, I, the only fans I've got sit in this house, and they're three boys, yeah, and two dogs, and, and every now and then my wife's a fan, but that's about it. But no, look, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I'm David Germain. Look, I, 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 I sit in the financial services. I'm a technologist. Uh, I deal with digital transformation, working with organisations on how they, they improve performance across the business and for their customers and for their shareholders. So it's that traditional type of stuff that you see many people like me do. I think in terms of my, my story, uh, it's an interesting one. So, so my parents came to the UK in 1960, well, actually 1956, 57. Uh, my dad came to the UK post Windrush. Um, so second world war and he was invited here by her majesty to help rebuild the UK. And we, my dad came from a small island called Dominique and the Windrush Islands. So it's about 70 odd thousand population, very small. And uh, if you walk around that island long enough, you'll probably see someone that looks a little bit like you and then question how, you know, what happened there, right? So, so you know, small island, fishing village, uh, no real career prospects. You pretty much bring up your family, you know, you work and, you know, a very religious environment, very Catholic, Catholic religious environment. When he came to this country, uh, uh, he had zero education, you know, couldn't read or write. In fact, he went through his whole life not being able to read or write. My dad was, was a frustrated man. He aspired to wanting to do great things, but what held him back is confidence and courage. What also held him back was the time, right? Pushing yourself, creating opportunities that weren't there. The prejudice that we had in the country at the time was very difficult for people that was coming into the country. And we've all seen many documentaries about that. And I think that that burdened my dad. I think rather than breaking out from society, he lived with that society. And that, that really, you know, for his whole life that I knew him, he was always a frustrated man. But some of the positives that came out of that for him was he had three, three beautiful kids from his perspective, you know, two, two girls and a boy. I was the youngest. Um, he managed to earn enough money to fly my, my mum and at the time his eldest daughter over to the country. I think it took him four years to be able to afford the flight to get them into the into the country wow. and like most uh, ethnic individuals at that time the shock and awe of working in the uk was bizarre right it was cold mm. people weren't at that time particularly open and generous with their time mm. uh, living conditions were completely different you know you're, you're talking about the sun where you know water was warm every day he went from you know warm water to cold showers right he went from an open environment yeah but it was it was third world but it was very open and everyone was very generous to being in an environment where, you know, your room, your bed, your toilet, your kitchen was all in one room, right? And actually staying out of this, you know, walking, walking the roads after dark wasn't, wasn't necessarily the, the, you know, the right thing to do in the UK at that point in time. So the cultural change for my dad and my parents coming here was, was bizarre. I think the education system that they didn't go through really held them back. And for them, it was about ensuring it didn't hold their kids back. And although they didn't really understand what to do with us in terms of education, uh, I was really fortunate. And this is, this is where my, you know, my, my childhood was one of uh, uh, hard parenting, Catholicism, Caribbean controls. And if I say that to your audience and you've got some Afro-Caribbeans in your audience, they'll know exactly what I mean. Couldn't go out. Stay at, you know, parents wanted, you know, if they couldn't see you, there was a problem, right? Mm. Uh, if you, if you made, if you, if you, if you were naughty, 
you know, uh, uh, the broomstick was normally what you would get, you, you get used, right? Mm. You ate Caribbean food every day. That was, the, that was the only menu that was on the, on, 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 you know, on the dish. Uh, 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 you watch what your parents watched in terms of TV, right? right? Your whole life environment growing up was controlled. And you lived in what I would call a fair culture, right? Everything was scary to a Caribbean person at that point in time. Leaving the house, staying out late, going anywhere you shouldn't, was always, was always carrying some kind of fair culture. And I can see Ab smiling, so we sort of get it, right? You, you weren't allowed to do a lot. You were so restrictive. So, so, so for me, the only thing I could do growing up was, was a couple of things. Go church, right? Uh, uh, education. I went to a very good school. I was very fortunate I got into a very good school. And my life was dictated around my school experience growing up. And if that was a, a negative school experience for me, I'm sure I wouldn't have gone on and achieved anything near where I am today. Mm -hmm. It was an extremely positive experience for me. And I was, it was 1500 boys. The year I joined was 80, 86 or 87. And we were, ethnic minorities were still new to that particular school coming in. So I think the population of ethnic minorities, including you know, BAME individuals, was mm. less than 3% at the time. So my hair looked different and I had a huge afro back then, right? You know, how I smelled was different. Mm. Everything about me was different. And I, and I just remember having school dinners and it was just like foreign food to me, right? Because I was mm. at that point, I grew up in a, in a Caribbean culture where it was all rice and peas, chicken, all that sort of stuff. So having different types of food put in front of me was like, oh my God, apple pie, what the hell is that, right? Didn't know what apple pie was until I was 11 years old. Didn't have my, my first McDonald's until I was like 15 years old or something crazy, right? So everything I experienced was, was for me coming out of my comfort zone. But, but what my parents didn't appreciate was I was building up resilience. Mm -hmm. I was learning and under, getting a better understanding of different cultures, different people. And I had a group of friends who were really, really open and really helpful to me. And I had a set of teachers that could see a kid that just wanted to learn, right? And I preferred to be in the school environment than at home because my home environment, we didn't have a lot of money. We were cancel kids. There was never, there was never any, anything in the house. So I, you know, being in the library, being in school, being in after school clubs for me growing up was much better for me than being at home. Not that I didn't love my parents because I loved them in, in, immensely, but there was no resources. There was nothing in that environment for me. So I'd rather, so I was, I was in every club. I was, you know, it didn't matter what the club was, whether I liked it or not, I would, I would find a way of joining that club. Right. So, so that, that whole educational system was fantastic. The problem I had was when I was, co when I was uh, coming home, because my parents had no, no view on education, never really went to parent teacher evenings, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. By the time I got to 15, 16, my dad had a view, which was you need to go and work. Right. And my dad was a builder. He was a construction guy and he was a low level builder. So he wasn't even doing anything design or foreman. He was literally the guy they gave the worst job to on a daily basis. Right. And it was, you know, we, you know, they had me when they were 47 and 45. So by the time I got into, you know, into my wow. late, my later teens, my dad was old. Right. Yeah. He, was, he was an older guy who was still doing wow. heavy physical labor mm -hmm. and growing up being your parents, your mum worked five cleaning jobs, your dad, you know, do cleaning jobs as well and being a builder during the day he was a heavy smoker because at the time he came from that environment where you know he grew up in an environment where smoking was good right if we all remember back in the 50s yeah. 60s 40s 50s 60s, in yeah. fact you were told to smoke it was right? it was, it was like smoking chic was and fashionable yeah 
That's right, right? And it was, you know, you were told, you go to the doctors, you've got a cough, you need to smoke 20 more cigarettes, that'll clear your cough for you, right? <laughs> so, so the addiction, right? the, the addiction of cigarettes, the, look, the, the addiction of cigarettes isn't easy for someone in their, you know, in 1990 to all of a sudden say to, to my dad, who has been smoking since he was 15 years old, yeah. you need to stop, Mr. Jamaica. It's yeah. too late by then, right? And really quickly, my grandfather was told by the doctor, oh, cigarettes are not so good for you. Try Move to cigars. Go to cigars. They're much better. <laughs> but from the doctor, from the doctor itself. So back yeah, in the so day, I, it was I, a different dad, mentality. Yeah. There's a, there's a story. It's a just inspired by your story. So back in India, there's this... Um, um, so a lot of the sort of construction workers, the people who are, you know, the rich poor divide is massive, right? Of course, in India has been for a long time. So the guys on the street, mostly sort of the older gentlemen, they used to smoke this thing. It was not cigarette. It was called a beady, beady, right? And a be and you might remember this from your days in Nepal or India, um, Rick. And it it stinks and it's awful. But you know, when you spoke to them, you said, "Well, why don't you smoke a cigarette?" They're like. That's horrible. Yeah, that's not good for you. We smoke this stuff. This is pure. It's really good for you. We were like, and so you know, it's funny. It's funny how these auras and perception is created around things that we now wouldn't touch. You know, so um, back to back to your story. But th it talks to the, the second chapter of this, which is um, the habits and the, the biases and the perceptions that you carry through into the corporate world. But we'll come to that in a second. But back back to you, uh, David. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, it's, it's almost like saying, don't worry about the cigarette with chemical compounds in it. Just have the root directory stuff, have the real hardcore stuff, which will yeah. <laughs> accelerate your, 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 your fatality a lot quicker. So, so, look, so my, my, my dad, you know, heavy smoker, heavy drinker. He was your classic guy, builder, came home in the evening. His relaxation was, you know, smoking, drinking, a bit of gambling. That's how they, that's what it was, was like back then. And mm. kids were somewhat of a bit of a nuisance, to be perfectly honest with you. He loved his kids, was a big protector but he wasn't someone I would call a, 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 an educator, right? He wasn't that sort of guy. But by the time I got to 15, 16, he made it very clear to me I had to get a job. And I remember looking at my dad and thinking, I don't want to become what you are. Not that I don't love you. I just, I just don't, you know, I, my results are good. I'm a relatively smart individual. I think I can do better. And I said to him, I said, if I can get a job, if I can get a job and I can earn money now, not on the building sites, but if I can get a job and I can earn money, uh, will you allow me to stay at home? Because that's what it was like back then, right? If you, weren't, uh, if you weren't bringing home money for your family and you were at an age where your parents considered you an adult, they'd kick you out, right? So, so he said, yes. So I remember going back to my teacher and saying, look, you know, A-levels, et cetera, all these things aren't going to happen in the way they should happen for me. What are my options? And they helped, they helped me and they, they got me onto a, a, an apprenticeship. And I was really fortunate. I applied for a few and I managed to select the one I wanted to select. And that, that allowed me to, to do a few things. One, I could go back to my dad and say, look, I can stay at home and I can contribute financially to the family. Mm -hmm. It also allowed me to continue my education and I was earning at the same time. And that for me was the, was the biggest change. The biggest difference is I was young, right? When all your mm -hmm. friends are doing A-levels and going off and doing what I would call a more traditional route, mm -hmm. I was having to work really hard. And I would say to anyone that doesn't want to do a degree, there are other options for you out there but don't give up on yourself and don't let anyone give up on you because you don't have to. Uh, mm. You just have to find a different path that works for you. And, and I have to say, you know, I do round tables and town halls and I've done that for many years. When I tell this sort of st story, it, you know, it resonates with people because you have to work bloody hard when you're just doing a job. We all know that gentlemen, right? We all do that on a daily basis. Mm. Working hard and educating yourself at the same time mm -hmm. 
is tough. And most people do that later in life when they're doing MBAs. What happens when you're 15, 16 years, let's say 16 years old, and you're in a situation where if you don't bring home a salary to support your family, your, your family's not living, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not supporting, you can't support them. And that's what it was for me. So responsibility and accountability, I've always had at a young age. Mm. And I do it. And I think that's helped me as I've moved into more leadership roles. I can take that pressure and that burden quite easily compared to individuals that have to progress their careers and move into it. I, I know no different. So build, having my own family, getting mortgages, all that sort of stuff where we all do that in life. And we think, geez, we're burdened now, right? But you know, how do we get out of this, right? We're going to have to spend 25, 30 years paying this thing off. Doing all of these transitional steps for me was, was, was quite easy. I then, I then realized, you know, I finished my apprenticeship relatively quickly uh, compared to the years I had to do it. But I worked with some very hardcore engineers and that was a good mentoring process for myself. And uh, I was your classic work your way up the ladder type guy. And I engineered uh, the condition of my career to realize I was never going to get there by um, what I would call staying in one organization for 30 years and, you know, going through a, a corporate chain of events. How, mm. how, I, how I got there was by realizing it's about getting the right level of experience in the right environment that could then lead to a bigger job somewhere else. And, and, and that's how I built my career. What I've seen during my time of, of doing these type these, these roles is if you don't have good sponsorship and you don't have great mentors, and I will talk about being a person of colour, it's bloody challenging, right? Mm. And I, I, I openly uh, sought companies where I felt they had great fame or great ethnicity or a great leadership environment where people will give you an opportunity. And they're the companies I've worked for my whole career, right? And uh, I've been very fortunate and I'm very privileged, uh, I believe I am, to, to have worked in companies that have allowed me to, to grow, have not looked at the colour of my skin, but looked at the content of my character and me as an individual and uh, have given me plenty of opportunities to fail as well, because that's what it's about. You can't always be successful if you make mistakes and you have to be given opportunities to make mistakes as well. Mm. So, you know, that's me, right? It's an individual who... Uh, uh, I always start by saying the same thing. Uh, I'm someone who's, I'm a family man. I come from those great core values of having a family around me. A, a big appreciation for society and what it can do. But I also can see what society can do to you as well. Mm. And how, how you can open up opportunities for people if you open your mind and your heart to different experiences and different cultural values. Mm. Fabulous. I have a quick question about the um, last piece around diversity is um, when you are looking at these different companies, you're vetting them and you're saying, hey, is this a place I would wanna be part of, an organization that I respect? And they get me hmm. as a person. Um, how, how do you sort out the difference between when they're trying to maybe take a box off of diversity versus it's a genuine value that they actually hold? Because there are a lot of distinctions out there with different companies of how they really live inclusion, like who are really, decision make do they have diversity and inclusion on the decision making level on the board level or is it just a tick box you know to look good for pr how do you suss that out when you're being interviewed or you're vetting a company if they're how genuine they are i mean you, you know this is it's 2020 so i think it's it's you know it's tinder right it's swipe left swipe right <laughs> and what, right and this is what what i think what I, and i don't use tinder this is just be very clear on it right but i i i, I I take a view that it takes two two parties to figure out 
what's going on. And, you know, the days are over where you can just assume uh, everyone wants to work for your brand. You go into an interview process and it's all about the company and if they're accepting of you joining their business. You can ask questions now, you can, especially at the more senior levels. You can do your research on the board. You can go into annual statements. You can go onto websites. You can look at their, their, their diversity statistics. You can look at where they sit in terms of benchmarking of, of, of pay for diverse individuals compared to, mm. you know, uh, 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 white, white individuals, right? You can start to do some of that stuff now to form a profile of the type of company. You can look at the type of social media content and feedback they get. Mm. What do people say about that company? We've got, you know, there's platforms like Glassdoor where you get tons of feedback. Mm. That will tell you very quickly. You'll also know from the boards who most boards, especially enlisted companies, have got huge networks. It's not too difficult to find out about those folks. Mm. And to your point, if you know, I've always said the same thing. There's, there's two elements to this. One, you need the company and the culture to give you the metric to say it needs to have a diverse board. And we, and we expect we've seen the same many times, right? By XX dates we expect a percentage of our board to be diverse. That's a statement many organizations have made in the past decade. You can't get away from that because if you, if you don't have that, there's no reason for them to make any changes, right? Mm. The, the challenge I've got is why? That's the question I always ask. Why mm. do you need your board to be diverse? What do you think you'll get experience? Why even make the statement? Just make it happen. Making, making the statement leads to you've got an anti-cultural process that doesn't allow you to make your board diverse, right? Because you're constantly having to make stuff. I don't make, I wouldn't make a statement if I was a CEO that said, I want my board to be all white. How many statements right. have you seen that says, I want my board to be all white? There's no such thing, right? Right. right? right? So why are, you, why are we making a statement and say, we need our, our board to have a percentage of diverse people? There's no, mm -hmm. We shouldn't be talking about it. If society was set in a manner which was open, and it's and non-exclusive to everyone i think we would find ourselves in a situation where these things would just be happening organically all the time the fact we still have to have candidates like me and i've been that candidate by the way i have been that statistic mm -hmm. and i've had to take a step back and say i sort of feel like i'm a statistic am i accepting of that or am i going to challenge that process and i have to be honest with you as a default i've, I've been accepting of it because i've always felt it's better if i'm in the role doing good things for other people, mm -hmm. they're right. not being in the role and challenging the process and having a conversation with both of you and sitting here as an independent person and, and not having the kudos of a brand behind me. So I feel, you know, it's, it's better to be in a role and do good and help, help the organization to improve than it is to sort of sit on the outside and be a bystander watching it all happen around me. I mean, the other, the other part to that is also this concept of role modeling, you know, and this goes for individuals and it goes for companies too, because yes, you can, you can analyze the situation as much as you want and you can think of the pros and cons and, uh, you know, kick in some of your personal bias into this as well, because that's very hard to detach yourself from. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking in a um, positive way and you're more optimistic, mm -hmm about life and you want to achieve contentment and happiness and joy um one of the one of the pathways is optionality is you have choices right and the more choices you not not too many there's also an optimal amount but the more choices you have to take a pathway that helps you achieve your ambition or your sense of purpose life gets a little bit more um in one sense bearable tolerable and then actually way more thrilling and exciting than ever before 
And I think you taking on the role is very important for the wider community that you represent and not just based on color, but also just based on demographics, like even age, you know, uh, people in their 40s who are aspiring to do big roles, whether you're black, white or brown, frankly, doesn't really matter. And that's important. It's important to serve uh, the community that you really care about as well as in the community that you come from. And that's a challenge in itself. We, we know that. And uh, I think the, I want to flip the sort of uh, the, the discussion towards role models and this concept of uh, which is what this topic is really focused on initially, which is, you know, this move away or not even move away, but it's this acceptance of prosperity, not just about making money and uh, the financial gains in, 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 in a large company. So profits, just for clarity, you know, because we got a lot of uh, funky comments on Facebook around the title, by the way, and I one or two I just didn't bother responding to, but uh, if you're on the replay or you're on the live session and you listen to the replay, whoever it is that that's made those comments, then let me justify and explain ourselves. So for us, profit is um, profit and prosperity are intertwined, no doubt, um, and they are interlinked. There's some connective tissue there, but there are there are often cases typically where large organizations, I won't name who, but we know them, all of us know them and they still exist. Many large organizations are so profit centric because of the systems that they've built. So they're accumulating a lot of cash. Executives get paid, you know, ridiculous amounts of money compared to their direct reports that divide between the top guy or gal earning money and the, the one at the bottom is just getting wider and wider. Uh, these sorts of things just create um, angst. It creates a unnecessary uh, sen sense of envy and it divides um, companies. Uh, but it can, it's been continuing for a long time and maybe it happened, you know, the model was built, God knows, a couple of centuries ago after the Industrial Revolution, more importantly, or the Agricultural Revolution. And this form of um, structure and the nine to five and everything that goes with it talks to this model that large corporations have built. But it's time for change. And maybe COVID has helped us to realize that maybe this was the change or the, the reset button that we really needed to think about. So my point here is profit is about making loads of cash. Think of the worst extreme example. Prosperity is taking some of that cash and trying to do good things with it, helping society, helping causes, not just because you want to see that come up in your CSR statements or, you know, it, like diversity, it needs to be a tick box. Like, oh, we've got five black people and three brown people floating around and a, a few people from India and a few from China. And so it's not about that really. Uh, and and it's it's it goes much deeper. And I I want to answer that question that I think you pose from my standpoint. Why is diversity important? Because to achieve end-to-end -end prosperity, every, prosperity is not about a race. It's about people in society. To achieve uh, dem democratic prosperity, you need a group of people in a board who are making loads of money. Fine, good for them. Who say, hey, we're making ten million. I think about a million and a half. Really, let's be honest, should go to this cause. Another million and a half should go to that cause. Let's help people even if we're selfish enough to say it's the next generation of employees for our business, X number of years out. And I think that's why diversity is important if I take prosperity as the, as the baseline. So I'm throwing the ball back in your courts, both Rick and, and yourself, David, and, say, and let us understand what you um, believe is the current state of, um, uh, or the status, what's, what's the current state of affairs inside a large organization? It doesn't have to be yours, but the ones that you know, are they profit driven mostly generally still or are you seeing some glimpses of hope and you say actually you know there's a you know the prosperity is on the cards but it's not authentic enough af and rick it's still kind of doing it because 
it's the right thing to do. Otherwise, God forbid, we'll have a Twitter campaign on or get trolled uh, by whoever it may be. So uh, a long-winded explanation, but I just wanted to give you the context and address the concern that some people posted on Facebook around the title. Rick, do you mind if I go first? Please go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so look, I, I'm going to take, I'm gonna take it an even more step back and tell you a story about another personal story for me, right? Mm -hmm. When you're young and you have no money, all you think about is earning money, right? If you, if you had my personal circumstance, it was about bringing in income. Mm -hmm. You get to a point in life where if you believe, if, you, if you've been fortunate enough to achieve enough income, you can start thinking about other things. And I'm at a point in life where I can start thinking about other, other things. Example, prosperity, right? It would be wrong of me at this point in my career if I'm not helping people. If I'm not helping a community that I choose to help, and if I'm not helping people to grow, become more confident, become more courageous, to find interesting roles, to give back, to find ways of doing that. Mm. And that's where I am in terms of my personal growth. And the reason why I say that is, until you can open your mind to personal growth, to prosperity, to social enterprise, to not having a capitalist construct and mindset as an individual, nothing's going to change, right? So the social condition of the UK is such that it's such an expensive economy and country to live in. The living standards here are so high. How do you get individuals to start thinking about anything else but self-preservation for them as an individual and for their families, right? And that's why after point you make is a really interesting point because if you put an investment if you have an investment portfolio and you spread it across a number of different com listed companies mm. your expectation as an investor is you get the return which has been projected based on the ceo providing you with a view on how he or she are going to build that business right and, and, and move that business forward and it's a short-term view or it's a longer-term view mm. when you look at that portfolio very few people look at a, a, a hedge fund or a funding model and say, let me have a look at the annual statement and see what it says about prosperity in there, right? That's probably a page some individuals flip and move away from pretty quickly. And they're more focused on what's the five-year projection that the, the analysts are telling me about this firm, right? Mm -hmm. What we're now starting to see is a group of investors uh, looking at what is this company doing beyond making money? So if Ethically, how does it make its money, which is very important, right? Nobody wants to invest in a company that's not, that's not ethically doing the right things. Correct. But also at the same time, what, what else is it doing for the society that it's developing wealth and profit for? Mm -hmm. And I think, that's, I think that's really important. And businesses, and specifically the businesses I've worked in and the leadership teams I've worked in, we all take that really seriously. And I think, Af, you make a really good point around COVID. What I've seen during this very unusual time in the world is communities and individuals think beyond themselves yeah good point i've seen yeah. in our local village i've seen people you know literally you know go shopping for the elderly knowing they can't do that mm. right i've seen uh individuals in a working environment prepared to you know get in their own car and deliver goods and services to employees mm. to make sure they can they've got the tools to do their jobs right We've, we've seen the UK, we've all stood up and clapped the NHS at eight o'clock in the evening when we were doing that for a while, right? We've seen our support services, we've seen communities come together, we've seen people prepared to give up on their own personal goods and, and, and experience and, and hand that over to, to colleagues and neighbours. That's the root. Mm -hmm. What we're also now starting to see is that social enterprise of 
of organizations looking for not the usual big charitable organizations, but they're trying to find those social enterprises that don't get an income, don't get sponsorship. It's two or three individuals trying to build something for the community mm. and, 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 and create something that's sustainable for that environment. Mm. And we're seeing big enterprise organizations wanting to invest in that. And I think that's fantastic, right? We need to keep on doing more and more of that to get to the levels of prosperity that we, that we would like the world to move towards, right? Generational wealth, enterprise wealth, that's never going to change. I think we have to be really realistic about that. No one wakes up in the morning and says, let me invest in an organization for CSR. Mm. Shareholders still want profit. Shareholders still want sustainable returns. Mm. But I think what's, what, what shareholders also want now is they want to know the organization they're working, they're working with or investing in can give more. And we're seeing moguls, right? We're seeing, we've seen it with Bill Gates. He's given away pretty much most of his fortune. We've seen it with Warren Buffett, right? We're now starting to see it with, with, with you know, Facebook. We're starting to see it with, 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 with Google, with Amazon. We're starting to see those moguls now, now appreciating they've hit so much generational wealth. What do you do with this, right? And actually, they want to they move it back into the world to figure out how they support research, how do they support ensuring parts of the world you know, who, who, who've got famine, how do you create more sustainable uh, products and services uh, around that? So mm. I, 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 take a, I take a different view. I think it has to start with the individual. It really does. You can't change anything about your mindset and that person wanting to change. That mm. then leads to boardrooms, individuals who are shaping the culture of the business, shaping how customers, shaping how shareholders see the organization. And then the actions that are generated from that leads to prosperity. So to t talk, talk us through a real example of what you think could be the biggest um, black swans coming your way or major discontinuities or major risks that you're less familiar with as an organization. So I don't mean the risks that, you know, year on year risk registers are built on and you feel more comfortable with and then more consultants come in and protect you against the risks that you know um, you can foresee. I'm talking about the unknown unknowns or the known unknowns. Um, given what's happened with COVID, given that there could be another pandemic, given that there could be a ge geopolitical storm, given that there could be a tsunami of some sort, I mean a real one, as in like there could be some environmental disaster, we've become more, more cognizant of the fact that these force majeure events, these sort of cataclysmic events may happen now before it was just in Hollywood, you know, watching Contagion or Elysium or all of the movies that Ridley Scott and these guys have been making for years that we're just enchanted by. We're starting to truly realize that actually those living room conversations about, oh my God, imagine if this happened uh, is, is reality because it did happen and it's happened already and we're wearing these masks running around like robots, protecting ourselves, not going into the neighbor's house and the whole lot. It's, it's a very different world. I hope it doesn't get worse, but it may. Um, tell us about what you think the big companies uh, believe would totally destroy or derail um, their, their future. And if that links to their ethos and culture or their DNA and their workforce and their, their role as an enabler to society, given you just said the village is more kind, people are more kind, we're more compassionate, not as focused on material success because we've just been slapped around a few times and realized, crikey, life is about much more than this. I mean, we've got people in, in our team, you know, where the partner is locked in another part of the world 
and they haven't met for months and months and months. I mean, that's, that's, it's terrible. You know, we all have, we all have our own stories. Has this, has, I have some faith, have these executives and CEOs in these big companies, I'm sure they're experiencing this pain as well when they go home. We're all sitting in behind a laptop on a, de on a desk at home, right? Um, how, you, as an executive, so two, two part question. One is, what are the big risks? What, are, what do you think is going to derail companies? Two, are you taking this compassion that you have now? Maybe you've changed, maybe your colleagues have changed or not, and are you bringing it back into work? So you're, change, you're going out of your way to change practices, or is it like, well, let's, let's not bother changing the system, but I feel like I should do a little bit more. Maybe I'll go around the corner and give the old lady a little bit more food. How's it getting manifested? So uh, two parts to it. I just wanted to understand that really. Rick, do you want to, I'm just conscious that you didn't, you didn't get the chance to respond to the first question. Do you want to? Oh, sorry, man. Sorry, buddy. Okay. So bookmark what AF just asked you. Um, I'll keep this really short here. I agree with you, David, um, and it's something that Charles Eisenstein, one of our past guests, has said in our show, that it has to start on the individual level. And how do we move from our story of disconnect and isolation, where it's me, 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 and I have to go for my own, and that's where the self-preservation comes from, to a story of connection, a story of relationship. And I loved how he, he coined that, and that's really the, the, um, the birthplace of are we trying to extract from our planet and extract from each other? Um, extract from our generational wealth and get get ours yeah. or is it really a sense of we're really in this together we're really part of the web of life and it's really that simple is it really going to be service to self only or also service to other and we're really connected on that deeper mindset shift that you're talking about <clears throat> how this how i see this play out on a practical level in the business space i'm working with a company right now that produces a high-tech widget and their whole aim was about production and, and people came second because it was all about, let's, we got to mass produce this thing now. All the yeah. pressure was on the metrics, all the pressures on the production line and making sure the machines and everything's all set up. And people, because the people were not valued, they burned out. And there were a lot of problems starting to show up that ended up costing the company a lot more money. And this is a story that I know a lot of us are familiar with out there. And so this is what's amazing is I see a, a generation of leaders now that are getting it, that are saying, oh, we forgot the people part, oh, and are willing to make a pivot and a brave, mm. courageous pivot. And I think COVID helps highlight that too, that we can't do any of the production line without our people. And if they don't feel valued and bought in in that deeper way, they're not going to care. They're not going to give their all. And so I just see this change in cultures happening on a more real, authentic level than I've ever seen. And it's exciting where you know, that's been confirmed with, you know, you and other people that we talk to that there is a shift happening in how we lead and how we respect our people and listen to them mm. and have them feel valued. And then it becomes a powerful relationship together. So mm. I just wanted to name that piece and totally in alignment with what you said. No, thank you. And I go back to your point after I, I like the blacks, the black swan concepts and the conspiracy theories, if you, you know, I've done so much reading, since you know, during COVID around why we are where we are, right? And I, I guess not having to sit on the train two hours every day can afford me a bit more time. I, I've got a, a different view, which is this situation we're currently in was inevitable with what we were doing to the world. Mm. It was inevitable, you know, and if you listen to, if you go on to you know, Bill, Bill Gates and listen to some of his journals, he was talking about this 
five, ten years ago it was going to happen, right? Which is scary. So this was an inevitable situation for how we treat the world, right? And how we treat each other as well, right? I think that that then leads to what what could happen next. What what has to happen next is the world uh, uh, needs to listen. Organisations and democratic environments need to listen and need to figure out what do they need to do uh, for their own businesses, for countries, and how does that complement a world a world state that demonstrates we're moving things forward rapidly and quicker than the conversations we've been having over the past 20, 30 years, where we haven't been moving things on rapidly and quicker. We've seen that with stuff that, you know, this country is an example. With, you know, Prince Charles was talking about having a more green environment 25 years ago. I watched a documentary on this. 25 years ago, maybe even 30, Prince Charles was talking about creating a more green environment for the UK. We've seen plastics, how that's impacting our, our environment. We've seen what's happened with water. We've seen what's happened with icebergs. We've seen what happened with, you know, global warming. All of these things we've seen, you know, where it should be cold in, in, a, in a seasonal view, it's now warmer. We are impacting the world, which will impact our kids and the next set of generations. This is, this is, this is the start, in my opinion, of the trigger for a change that needs to happen and needs to rapidly happen. I can't forecast what does that mean, right? I don't know what that next thing is going to be, but there will be something else we know that and it can't and it can't be human beings doing it to each other through warfare through 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 a political environment that we've been creating and 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 hiding behind for a long time so i think that black swan is here i think it could be everything and anything and i think it's a aggregation and a compound effect of everything we've been doing for a long time that's led us to this point that's number one i think the second part of your question around you know, the communities and, and what people are doing. When you go through something like this in the world and you go through it intimately with colleagues and friends and you hear their personal stories around don't have childcare, uh, trying to balance the kids' education, looking after my mum who lives three roads down and I've got to go there every day and drop off her, her shopping for her. The, you know, the fatalities of people who have lost parents or uncles or aunts or sisters or brothers these are all very personal stories which impact you. And if you, if you haven't personally been impacted in that way, it's emotional for you to see a colleague go through that. And I've seen several colleagues go through that uh, over the last four or five months. And that, that's really, that's, that, that really hurts me personally. What I've also seen is the response of individuals to their society. And I've seen, I've seen so much change that they brought from their personal lives into their professional lives and the demands and the challenges they've asked of the organization and the changes to processes and policies and the organic things companies will now do to support individuals. Mm -hmm. Example being, you know, we're all uh, uh, digitally working from home, compressed hours for individuals, right? Changing your operating models. So, you know, if you've got to look after your kids during the days, you can work in the evenings and do a similar type job, changing your job, you know, reskilling, changing your skills to reflect what your world needs to look like. We're also seeing individuals who the four or five months they've had not in the working environment has led them to thinking, you know, and challenging themselves on, is this the right career for me? Mm. That's going to sound bizarre. I've had many conversations with individuals who have said, I'm not actually thinking about changing careers and doing something completely different because I've had that, you know, not many people get afforded the time 
to take stock and think. You're in the machine. You're moving yeah. forward. It's constant momentum, right? That's right. Yeah. I said to someone, this is, a, this is a bizarre thing to say, but I'm going to say it. This has been one of the best times in my personal life. Mm-hmm. One of the best times in my personal life. And the reason why, and, and, and excluding COVID and what's happened in the world, because I'm very emotional about that. Mm. I've never had this opportunity to spend every day with my kids, ever, right? I get the opportunity to wake up, I see my kids, I get the opportunity to interact with them through the day when I go and get a cup of tea, a glass of water, I can see them running around. I get the opportunity to see a a part of life that I had never seen before, because I'd be waking up in the morning in the UK winter hours, it would be dark, I'd be Mm. leaving, trying to get some well-being health type stuff done in the morning in the gym, it would still be dark getting on the train, it's starting to get closer to dawn, getting into the office. I'm one of, you know, there's not many of us in the office at that time. And by the time I've left the office, it's dark again. By the time mm. I get home, my kids have gone to bed and it's my wife up with, with the list she wants me to get done for her, right? Which I try to avoid at all, all, all costs. So, so, <laughs> so, so, you know. Some consistencies and there's some consistency. <laughs> there you go, right? So, so you know, for, for me, it's, it's this time has really allowed a different type of connection with my kids. It's interesting to see how close we've become, what they ask of me compared to now what they ask of their mum. They're, yeah. they're as comfortable coming in here and daddy, daddy, we need X, where before they would never ask me those questions because they didn't see me as being that type of individual that they could go to because it was always mum. You know, the balance of my life, work life, is much better than it has been at any other point mm-hmm. before. I would struggle, if I'm being totally honest, I would struggle to just go wholesale back yeah. to where we were five, six yeah. months ago. Yeah. It would be, you know, and I think, you know, I, I think I can echo that and say there's probably many, many people in the audience that would say the same. It doesn't mean I want to keep this state forever because right. this state is, is, it can't be the new norm. It has, you know, I need social interaction. I need to see you guys face to face at some point. You know, I need, I need some of that, mm. but I don't want to lose what I've created with my family dynamic yes. because mm. it really works for all of us as well. Yeah. David, let me ask you a question, and then we want to also remind our audience to ter- uh, send in your questions. We've got a, a coming in, but if you have any burning questions, now's the time to send them in. Uh, question for you, David, is for emerging leaders. Um, and I know you've been leading in the corporate space for quite a while now. Um, when it comes to really practical steps, what are things that emerging leaders, how could you advise them? How could you coach them right now in how they could be making an impact in the ways that we're talking about today toward prosperity when their culture may or may not care about that as much. Uh, maybe it's still more profit-led, but they know that for their sense of meaning and purpose and having a bigger impact, they might have a different manifesto. Mm. How, how, do you, how do you recommend for emerging leaders to walk into those organizations? Uh, what advice do you have? First of all, if you aspire for leadership, make sure you work with an organization or a firm, going back to, to AFS point, that's got great role models, right? Mm. Research is required now. If you, you know, you can't just be a graduate anymore and just go and take a job. That could do more damage to your career than you, than you absolutely think. And I'll give you two great examples of that. You know, my leaders growing up were, you know, the environment I was in was uh, northern, middle-aged, hard men who swore, said uh, vulgarish things, uh, uh, had no view about calling me, you know, some interesting names, right? Mm. Uh, and that was acceptable at the time. Mm-hmm. And my and my job at that time was keep you know what everyone would say to me at that time was keep your head down, David. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. You've got to get on with it. Keep your head down. Right? Wow. Mm-hmm. So so you walk into an environment. If you think that was the environment I was in, so so it was 
sure, is that a role model, right? Now, my, my personal value system knew it wasn't a role model, but these were the people that were getting on around me and I wasn't getting on, right? These are the people that were getting on. So do I, do I become like that or do I stick to my principles knowing I'm not going to ever move into the leadership roles I think I can attain in the industry? That was a huge challenge for me because sticking to your guns uh, for many years led to zero promotion for me, right? That's number one. Mm. So I think if you fire for leadership, you really have to work with organizations where you can see there's great role models and they live and breathe that. And you can go into those organizations and really learn from those individuals because that's leadership, right? Leadership's mentoring, leadership's thinking out of the box, Le leadership's being creative, leadership's thinking about the types of teams you're going to build, right? I've worked for fantastic organizations with great leaders as well who can give you all of that and more mm. and, and really put you in a situation where you're, you know, you just feel like you're constantly developing all the time because mm -hmm. there is no answer above. You have to continuously learn and develop yourself and challenge yourself to be better and to improve all the time. So I think that's, that's the first part. The second part is another, another great story. And I think after I told you this story, believe it or not, 20 odd years ago, I used to have dreadlocks down to my shoulders, right? And uh, it had nothing to do with being a Rastafarian or religion. I used to play rugby and it, uh, that was just a look. It was a look I loved. And my, it started off with little twists and it got longer and longer. And that, rather than keeping it at a certain size, I just let it grow. It grew to my shoulders. I put it in a ponytail and I kept it. And I loved the look. I was about 17 odd stone. I was a big muscular bloke because uh, I played rugby. And optically, I guess I looked uh, visibly intimidating to someone. Mm. But the, the individual I am is just a normal, funny individual, right? And I, I, I realized at a point in my career, I wasn't progressing anymore and I needed to, uh, to move on. So with my you know, shoulder length dreadlocks and my 17 stone, 17 stone frame, I went on a number of interviews and I was very fortunate. I didn't have an exotic name. Mm -hmm. David Germain is not an exotic name. You could just assume I'm French. You could assume mm -hmm. I'm English, right? And it wasn't until I got to the interviews that I realized I was never going to get the job. And it took me, I don't know, 15 plus interviews, right? Before I realized, cause I kept on knocking on the door. I kept, I was that type of guy. And I remember going home and looking at my girlfriend at the time, Tracy, and I said, look, I don't know what's going on. I can't get a job. And I don't think, you know, I think I've got good experience now. I don't know why I'm struggling to get a job. And when we had this conversation. She went, you should cut off your hair. Went, what? Wow. She went, you should cut off your hair. Wow. And we sat in front of the mirror. And she literally got scissors and she went chop, chop, chop. And I went running off to the barbers. He shaved the rest of my, my hair off. And I ended up looking like Errol Brown from Hot Chocolate, if anyone remembers that, 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 that fantastic brand, that fantastic band from the, yeah, that's what I looked like without the facial hair, right? And, and uh, the next interview I went on, I got the job. Wow. And, and what, you know, what I should have realized was the acceptance of society on what you look like. But the biggest thing I also thought about was the leaders that sat across the desk from me that didn't give me the opportunity, mm. right? There was 15 plus people who didn't give me the opportunity. Yet an individual did because of how I appeared in front of him. And actually a year into that job, I asked him the question and I said to him, if I had turned up with long dreadlocks to my shoulders, I'm not a customer facing individual. I'm a technology guy. So mm. I'm in the back room, right? Would you have given me the job? And he said, David, honestly, no, no, because the way you looked would have led me to believe how you would behave. 
And I would have made an assumption how you looked meant that you would have had a behavior which would have been challenging for me to manage. Mm. And that was an interesting uh, bit of feedback I received. Um, and that helped me actually when I then went on into leadership roles and how I mentored people around not making an assumption about any individual. Be open, mm. be open-minded to everyone you come across and give them a fair shake. And that's the key for me. Everyone should have a fair shake. So when you talk about leadership and aspiring leaders, find the right role models, find the right firm that works for you, work bloody hard to attain the position and the role you want. And I think what you'll find is once you're in that systematic process, you can progress and move on based on the values, objectives, what you're looking for for your career over time. That's a, that's a beautiful story, actually. And um, I'm, I was shaking my head aggressively because a lot of it resonates. Um, we have a question that came in from Trevor, which we're going to throw at you, uh, David, and if you're comfortable answering. It's a good question, actually. Um, it starts with, any thoughts about intergenerational wealth transfer? Uh, should that be mandated in some way to ensure the younger generations can start their lives without the debt mountain and um, they receive they receive as a result of education? So in, in other words, this intergenerational wealth transfer responsibility towards the younger people so they're not burdened with the ridiculous amounts of debt, which we know financial debt can be the, a huge cancer, a huge disabler. And unfortunately, we know today, unlike in the times when we were, I'm not that old, definitely, but you know, I feel old sometimes. But even when I was younger, the property market was different. The accessibility of finance was different. Um, the pressures were different, right? And, uh, and whilst I'm sure there was mental um, uh, you know, illness then, the, just the prevalence of it now over the last few decades and the amount of pressure we put on ourselves as, as parents, as adults, as kids and pass that on to younger generations is immense, it's ridiculous, which is why um, a lot of our decision-making capabilities and back to my friend Rick, who wrote a book on decisive intuition, uh, one part that's been totally destroyed and eroded is our trust on our own intuitive capabilities. So we're like, uh-uh, got to look at the data. Uh-uh, got to read the news. Uh-uh. And you're so addicted to everything outside of you that you have no more faith or trust in yourself. And that has knock-on effects on your confidence and, and of course, your ability to learn, i.e. your competence down the line. So with all of that deluge of, of just nastiness waiting for the younger generation, is intergenerational wealth transfer something that we should take seriously? What are your views on it? Certain cultures do it today, right? I think the, Ind the Indian culture does it today. Yeah. Uh, the African culture about it. does it. <laughs> right, right? Certain cultures, you know, if, you know, if you're going to have kids, there's a, there's a view, there's a school of thought that says, A, you never stop being a parent. That's number one. You never stop being a parent. But two, parenting is beyond guidance. It's ensuring your kids have a, sustain a sustainable way of living once you're, once you're gone. From this world right i i've got two views on that actually and it's a bipolar view because i I'm, I'm it's a trade-off for me one is how much do you to do you do before your kids can stand on their own two feet right right in some cultures it's you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna bail at the point i've paid for my kids to do their degree at the yeah. point i've paid for their education 
I'm going to bail and now it's life's up to you. The realization is and the intuition piece is really important, but the data is telling us it's difficult for kids who are coming out of university to A, they get jobs, but B, to buy their first property. Yeah. We're seeing, we're seeing individuals in the UK predominantly not being able to buy property until their mid thirties. I remember when the trend was late twenties, we're now seeing the trend for mortgage first buyers being mid thirties, right? Yeah. And this is yeah. really fortunate. We're seeing a lot of graduates and actually kids go back home and live yeah. with their parents because they can live, they can live relatively for free and they can save all their money to help with their first deposit. Right? So, so I'm in the space of, I've got three young boys. How much do I give them that will benefit them longer term without making life overly easy for them and not having to go through any experiences. I don't want my kids to go through any of my experiences, by the way. Right. When I tell them about some of my experiences, it's so alien and alien to them. They just don't, they don't get it. They can't work out where we live, how we live and how dad used to live. It just feels like it's a, it's, it's a different world for them. And I, and I'm accepting of that, but I don't want them to not have any hardship either. Cause I don't think you can build a character and a resiliency if your parents just give you intergenerational wealth and just move it over to you. And we've seen that with more aristocratic environments where it's ingrained in, 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 in how their kids are, 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 are financially supported over time. I think we need to find a balance where for prosperity, for the sake of prosperity, I would like to think when I get to an age where I'm retired and there is some finance sitting there, I can do some good for the world or some good for the community. That doesn't necessarily mean it all goes to my kids. But at the same time, I don't want to, I don't want my kids to struggle if I've worked you know, extremely hard over the past 30, 30, 40 years in my career where I can give them a, a bit of a helping hand. So there has to be a balance here. And I think the intuition, I think it's important because I think you have to look at what's going around you at the time mm. that leads to sort of the decisions you make. I, I would hate to think it's binary and, and to Trevor's point, you know, if he is a believer in that, that, you know, we, we create trust funds, and we hand over those trust funds at the age of 25 and right. kids go off and do whatever they do with it. I think we need to find some way of balancing everything out. So your kids are developing their personalities, their character. They've had some tough times. They've had some failure, but ultimately all of us would hate to think of our kids not having uh, some level of, 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 of sustainable income, Correct. financially being relatively secure yeah. and not having to, to deal, hustle the way we've all had to hustle in our careers. Yeah, hang on. Excellent points. Um, David, we have to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, we could be talking for another easy, couple hours easily with you. Um, thank you so much for your wisdom experience, uh, sharing your guidance for emerging leaders and, and everyone, actually, um, that are trying to really make a difference in organizations around the world. Um, so really appreciate your, your perspective and views today on Straight Talk Live. How can people find out about you uh, should they want to learn more about David Germain? Where should they go? LinkedIn, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, 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 that's the channel I've chosen. I'm not great with Insta and Facebook and my wife's got a Facebook, but you won't find me on it. Um, but no, LinkedIn, I use the professional channel LinkedIn. I have many people that reach out to me and uh, I'd love to interact if they're there. And I'd just like to say thank you for the opportunity, Rick. And I, I really appreciate it today. I think b before we were on this, before we started recording, I said to you, my, my kids love Black Panther. Do you recall that? Oh, yes. So I think I, I would ask both of you, let's just respect Black Panther and uh, uh, Chad Bosnan and, and sort of thank you Chad for all you do uh, yeah. uh, I appreciate that gentlemen <laughs> I appreciate that and uh, good luck and thank you for having me
Thank you again, David. And uh, just for our audience for next time, we're going to take our first break ever in the history of Straight Talk Live. So we're not going to be live next week, but in two weeks, we'll be back with one of our favorite guests, uh, Jody Halpern, who's a, she's one of our professors at UC Berkeley. Uh, she's going to be talking about remaking the self in the wake of loss. She studies empathy, um, emotional intelligence, and how to, and we're all facing loss in today's world in so many different ways. And so how do we bounce back? What's our sense of resilience in that? She's also a professor of AI and ethics and bringing ethics back to the artificial intelligence conversation. She's amazing, speaks at the World Forum. So please, World Economic Forum, please join us in two weeks. Straight Talk Live, same channel. You can see this replay um, uh, in the next day or two that will be on um, iTunes, Spotify, then of course on YouTube or our um, our home, home site, our homepage at uh, straighttalk.live. So thank you all again. Af final words? Uh, what, what, a, what a fantastic session. Thank you very much, David. Very excited um, to, to have had this conversation with you. Looking forward to having you on the show again at some point, hopefully. And, um, you know, send us your, your positive energy and your blessings because we, we really need straighttalk.live to grow and expand. And we need people like you to help us do that, right? So uh, thank you very much and uh, namaste for today. Thank you. Namaste.